Section 2 of The Short Life by Francis Donovan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peter Eastman. 5. There should be no deaths. Phil turned that one over in his mind cautiously. A good deal of his attention was needed for the task of nursing his old car along the ruts of the dirt road, but the murmured exclamation impelled him to steal a glance at the boy sitting beside him. This was the spring of Timmy's tenth year, the sixth year of his friendship with Uncle Phil, and those years had taught Phil more than he realized, if less than he had hoped. He knew, for example, that the peculiar vacancy of Timmy's expression at the moment implied deep thought rather than the complete absence of thought that it suggested. That was a curious characteristic that always made the man a little uneasy. Timmy's face was sometimes radiantly, spontaneously expressive, the most sensitive of mirrors, and sometimes it was rather mechanically expressive, but it was only expressive in a positive sense. In moments of abstraction or daydreaming there was no faraway look, no frown of concentration, only blankness. The world would get a trifle crowded, you know. Timmy leaped the gap easily to connect the two remarks, as Phil had thought he would. Oh, I didn't mean there should be no death. I was thinking of something else. That man they found dead in the bush yesterday. A man with a heart condition should never go hunting alone. Was it his heart, Uncle Phil? His heart and his head both, if you ask me. He had a bad heart, all right. I saw him have an attack once. You'd think a man like that would have sense enough to avoid overexertion, but he lost his way and started churning through swamp and brush in a straight line instead of looking for the trail again. Must have acted like a moron running until he dropped. Would panic make a man do that? It will make a man do any crazy thing imaginable if he lets it get the upper hand. There's only a few square miles of marsh and brush here, with the town already crowding up against it. In a few years it will be drained and the land used for industrial development and so on. Then the fools will have to find some other way to kill themselves. What do you mean? Oh, every so often we have to turn out search parties and have a grand chivalry looking for some idiot who usually turns up dead, drowned himself in two feet of water, or run himself ragged, or even put a bullet through his head for no good reason. It's happened several times in the past few years, so the place is getting a bad name it doesn't deserve. Even the search parties often get themselves balled up and mill around in circles, perfect examples of mass hysteria. Sometimes I get fed up with the human race. I didn't know. I mean, about the deaths. Phil laughed outright at the tragic tone. Oh, come on, let's not be morbid about it. You wanted to drive out here, remember? I still do, Uncle Phil. You and Dad were talking about how you used to come out here every spring when you were kids to collect specimens, and it sounded like fun. So it was, in those days. This old dirt road leads well in toward the center. I used to spend a whole day hiking along here with my dog, just rooting around and having a grand time. 
It's a pity we outgrow the best things in life. Childhood scenes should be remembered, not revisited. We can remember, but we can't recapture. A few years ago I wanted some nature photographs, so of course I came out here, sure I'd get some beauties. I don't know. I started out in high spirits, recognizing every rotted old stump along the way, but somehow it all turned to ashes. I lost interest and turned back without taking a single exposure, almost hating the place, in fact, as if it had let me down. Strange that a place I loved as a kid should seem so empty and uninviting now. He put on the brakes and looked around morosely. Don't you want to go any farther, Uncle Phil? What for? You can see how overgrown the road is getting. I'll be lucky if I can find a clearing to turn around. There's nothing of interest up ahead, Timmy. The road dies out, and then there's a couple of miles or so of swamp and flies. It's getting dusk, too. I'd like to get out for a minute. Oh, well, okay, but make it snappy. He settled back listlessly as the boy climbed out, holding the door for the dog to follow. Do you have to take that mutt? Never mind, go ahead. The boy wandered off to the side of the road, and Phil listened to the rustle of bushes, wondering at his own irritation. He felt ill at ease, anxious to be away. He started as Timmy came up beside him on the left of the car. That was quick. Yeah. The boy was holding a spray of flowering shrub, and his hand passed casually over the flowers in a light caress. Say, hasn't this flower got a sweet smell, Uncle Phil? Here, smell it. It's a pretty flower, Timmy, but that stuff has no perfume. He accepted the branch automatically, lifted it to his nostrils. Time stopped. He thought he felt a thump against the side of the car, but the impression faded before it was fully born. In a remote corner of his mind, the ticking of his watch sounded as a cold measured rhythm, a metronome with delusions of syncopation. He sat motionless, his forearm resting on the steering wheel, the spray of blossoms caressing his cheek. His mind, stunned by the anaesthetic, he drew in with each breath. He was as one lost in thought, his eyes open but unseeing, observing but not interpreting. There was no sense of duration, of the passage of seconds or minutes. There was only a dream in which, suddenly, a gentle mind made its presence known. Concepts tapped lightly at his own mind, and an automatic process of interpretation winnowed and equated, until a gentle voice seemed to speak. The words were few, merely computed associations keyed to understanding, and with them were perfectly and intimately synchronized fragments of emotion and vision, softly washing over the surface of his mind. Urgency. Attend! Attend! Chalinari, attend! An impression of convolutions drifted through his mind, a shape, perhaps, and a color. He felt no curiosity, 
and let the impression drift. As a sunbather drowsing on a crowded beach, hearing the background hum of the crowd, and now and then a more clearly spoken phrase, so he caught the edge of this communication. It was not for him. A second mind entered. Was it a mind? Yes, and yet very different. It was strong but limited, perhaps childlike in some ways. Alive after a fashion, it was receptive of emotion up to a point, and even capable of emotion up to a point. It seemed an embryo mind, in some ways well-developed, and in others with no potential whatever. Relief. Identity blurred. No, not no. Perplexity. No precedent. Require instructions. Confidence. Trust. Instruct, please. Instructions. Decisive. Sleep. 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 Agitation. Identity, not mentor. Instructions involve basic disobedience. Confusion, distress. Cannot obey, disobey. Dilemma insoluble to Chalinari. Pleading. Revise instructions, please. Sorrow. Cannot revise. Identity, mentor, not mentor. Chalinari must obey identity. Great agitation. Accept identity, mentor, not mentor. Cannot reconcile basic conflicts. Cannot obey, disobey. Sudden hope. Logical divergence permissible. Simplify explanation, please. Reluctance, hesitation. Intelligent identities here. Unable, communicate. Chalinari. Result. So. Pain. Communication. So. Wave pattern. Unhesitating. Illogical. Reject. Communication described impossibly limited. Inconsistent high-level intelligence. Chalinari limited. Must accept. Command. Chalinari sleep. 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 Extreme agitation. Cannot. Must. Obey. Command. Pity. Chalinari has destroyed intelligence. Must sleep. 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 Agony. Horror. Conflict. Insanity. Chalinari. No response. Grief. Ultimate withdrawal. Chalinari. Chalinari. Phil frowned, looking at his empty hand. It seemed to him that the spray of flowers had inexplicably vanished. There was an elusive sense of disorientation, a feeling of something overlooked. There was the tag-end of a remembered grief. There was... You were right, Uncle Phil. They have no scent. What? He looked around blankly, saw Timmy tossing the spray aside. Oh, there it is. I thought I... Uh, forget what I was going to say. Two voices that were not voices. A dream, a despairing cry. An elusive memory faded, faded. There's mud on your cheek, Timmy. Did you fall? No, uh, that is, yes. Timmy scrubbed his cheek industriously. Make up your mind. Hurt yourself? No, I'm all right. Well, whip around to the other side and hop in. 
Phil watched him in the rear-view mirror and noted the hasty dab at moist eyes. It seemed like a significant giveaway, but he couldn't imagine why. Get your mud in and let's go. Come on, Homer. The boy settled himself with his dog between his feet, and Phil laughed. His good spirits returned. He turned the car without much trouble, and they bumped back over the wagon ruts. Why do you call him Homer, Timmy? Well, on account of the Odyssey, you know. I see. Some day, when I have a clear mind and a couple of hours to spare, you can explain the connection between Homer's Odyssey and a flea-bitten semi-Airedale. They rode in silence for a while, until the dirt road changed to pavement. Phil let his thoughts wander idly, thinking of nothing in particular. Scraps of this and that seemed to float to the surface, and drift out of reach before he could capture them, had he been interested in trying. One fragment somehow caught in an eddy, and remained in sight long enough to draw his attention. Chalinari, he said wonderingly, and almost ditched them, a stabbing pain shot through his temples. He held the wheel with one hand, the other clapped for a moment to his brow. Don't do that, he snapped angrily. What, Uncle Phil? Sorry, Timmy, I didn't mean you. I don't know who I meant, or rather what I meant, of course. I seem to be pretty confused tonight. I even startled poor old Homer with that swerve. Get his muddy feet off the cushions, Timmy. Homer sank back obediently to his usual place between Timmy's feet, but his muzzle rested on the boy's muddied knees, and his brown eyes regarded both of them at the same time. Apparently he was not convinced that the upheavals were over. What does Chalinari mean, Uncle Phil? Oh, that. Just something that came to mind. But what does it mean? I don't really know, Timmy. Something about convolutions, or a convoluted shape, I think. But that's only part of it. There are connotations of... of intelligence? No, ridiculous. How can you have a convoluted intelligence? But a brain is convoluted, and to a greater or lesser degree intelligent. The... um... the question of degree comes into it, I think. A brain of limited intelligence, then. Though damned if I know why I think of it as limited. Chalinari, Chalinari. It's not English, and it doesn't sound like a technical word, but I must have heard it in connection with something, quite recently, too. Sort of rhymes with chivalry. <laughs> Only sort of, Timmy. You wouldn't make a good poet. Chivalry, Chalinari. I mentioned chivalry when we were talking about people getting lost in the bush, didn't I? Did it have some connection with that? But how? Maybe a sort of mental trick? Mental association rings a bell. Mental... No, it's gone. Wait. Teacher, trainer, instructor. A brain of limited intelligence would need a teacher. Gentle teacher. Why gentle, for Pete's sake? But teacher and pupil, that seems almost right. How much can one word mean? What am I trying to recall anyway? The meaning of a word? The associations connected with a word? The association of ideas? 
Blast it, this is more than tantalizing. Like when you wake up knowing you've had a dream, but you can't remember any of it? Uh, yes, like a dream. A dream of... The blood drained from his face, leaving him grey and ashen. Timmy put out a hand in alarm to steady the wheel. Uncle Phil! It's all right, Tim. It... it's all right. I had a thought there that kind of shook me. He relaxed with a shaky laugh, relief flooding his face once more with color. What a crazy thought! I could have sworn... Well, never mind. But it shakes a man to learn what tricks his own mind can play on him, all in an instant. What kind of tricks, Uncle Phil? Oh, no, you don't. If you hadn't egged me on with so many questions, I'd have been spared a pretty nasty moment, you know that? Now let me concentrate on driving for a change, so I can get you home in time for supper, okay? But, oh, okay. Don't sound so disappointed, chum. It's been a pleasant drive, even if nothing much happened. Yes, Uncle Phil, even if nothing much happened. Spring changed to summer, and summer rolled into its final days. Phil was in a gloomy frame of mind when Timmy's eleventh birthday came around. He watched Timmy draw a deep breath and, without puffing out his cheeks as a child would do, neatly blow out the eleven candles on his cake. It was an efficient, sprayless, perfectly controlled operation, an operation carried out happily and in high spirits, and it depressed Phil. The party itself depressed him. A child's birthday party with no children present, unless you counted Timmy. Phil and Doc, Helen and Jerry, and Homer, the latter grey-muzzled and stiff in the joints. That was the roster of the guests, and it could almost be called the roster of Timmy's total acquaintances. His parents, his two friends, and a dog that at its best had never seemed bright, and now was obviously half-dead with age. The boy was not normal, had no normal life, and gave no indication of ever being likely to take a normal role in life. He was a disordered personality, if one could take comfort in a tag, but the true nature, cause, and cure of his divergence from normal would remain unknown, so long as his parents were afraid of tampering. Did you make a wish, Timmy? Sure, Mom. Helen, honey, Tim knows that wishing when you blow out the candles is kid stuff. And what is he but an eleven-year-old kid? He's too smart to believe in wishing, honey. Smarter than his old man, eh, Tim? I'll never be as smart as you, Dad. That's my boy. But you don't kid me. Jerry turned to Phil and Clancy, feigning indignation. You know what happened the other day? I brought home an old design that I dug out of the files and wanted to look over, a helical gravity conveyor. And when Tim saw it spread out on the table, he said, That's the curve I was just reading about. Now how did that little so-and-so know enough to call it a curve? That figured he was bluffing and got him to show me where he read about it, and the brat showed me all right in one of my old college textbooks. Of course, I only had to ask a few questions to find out that the college texts are far beyond him, but imagine him dipping into them on his own and getting anything out of them at all. 
How about that, young man? Explain yourself. Timmy hesitated, his eyes dark with uncertainty. You said I could, he blurted defensively. Remember, remember I asked you one day and you said, Your father isn't angry, Timmy. Helen laughed, hugging him. Honest, you get worried about the darndest things. He's proud of you. Don't you know paternal boasting when you hear it? Oh! The shadow lifted, and he laughed sheepishly. I get it. It was nuance of idiom that threw me. Calling me a brat and a so-and-so was affectionate misdirection to conceal. He broke off at their expressions. Helen darted a quick look around and came to his rescue again. Timmy, child, where you get these here highfalutin expressions I'll never know. It sure ain't from your low-talkin' pappy. Or from your low-comedian mammy. It's all right, son. You just sound a bit bookish sometimes, that's all. Want some help with the dishes, Helen? You know darn well you'd divorce me if I said yes. You and Clancy take Timmy in the front room and let him teach you something. Phil's just crazy to help with the dishes, aren't you, Phil? The obvious answer is yes. Okay, let's go. They piled the dishes, choking and chattering, until the sound of laughter from the front of the house told them that the others were occupied. Then Helen put down the dish she was washing. Well, Phil? Am I supposed to know what that means? Phil, in plain language, is Timmy a... a genius? No, I don't think so. He's unaccountably bright in many ways, and just as unaccountably slow in others. I don't think genius comes into it at all. That's what I think, too. Timmy's no genius, yet he does things that only a genius type could do. Don't exaggerate, Helen. A sharp youngster living a secluded life and studying more than he plays may be years ahead of other kids who go to public schools. He's farther ahead than you think, Phil. I have Timmy in the house with me all day, so maybe I know him better than Jerry does. He fooled Jerry with that business of the college textbooks, but not me. I think that for some reason Timmy doesn't want us to know how advanced he really is. I think he slipped up when he commented on that helical what's-it, then covered his slip by pretending he'd only leafed through the texts and picked up a bit here and there. I know when that boy's fooling, and I know he deliberately fluffed the questions Jerry put to him. Timmy's just plain lousy when it comes to dissembling, you know, as if it was completely foreign to him to lie. All right, all right, I know what you're going to say. Fond mama building mother's intuition fantasy around only child. Well, I kept an eye on him after that, and about a week later Jerry brought home some calculus dealing with the new design he's developing. He ran into trouble with it, and sweated and swore for an hour, while Timmy sat and read, and I kept peeking in the hall mirror that lets you see into the front room from the kitchen. After a while, Jerry left the room to look for some tables he wanted, and Timmy slipped over and looked at his work, made a single notation, then dived back to his book as Jerry returned. Jerry started to sweat over the thing again, then suddenly did a double-take. He made some erasures, and in five minutes had the whole thing worked out, cursing himself for misreading a figure or something. Now don't tell me it was just a coincidence. Timmy hadn't seen that problem before, and it should have been miles over his head anyway. 
yet he gave it a quick glance, spotted the air, changed the limits of an integration, and put Jerry on the right track. Just like that. Phil carefully massaged a dry plate even drier. So I stagger back and gasp, I can't believe it, or something insane but appropriate. The disturbing thing to me is that I not only can believe it, I do believe it. Completely. I may as well tell you now what I haven't told anyone else, that I've been methodically tricking Timmy for some months past. In fact, ever since I began to suspect that his knowledge of the sciences was, to say the least, unusual for a boy his age. I probably led him into making that slip with Jerry, identifying the curve, by giving him the impression that any boy his age would know far more chemistry, math, and physics than is actually the case, I tripped him into revealing that he himself knows a very great deal about them, perhaps more than I do. I begin to suspect now that I didn't set my sights nearly high enough in leading him on, but God alone knows where he could have learned. On anything that could be related to the humanities, he's very slow, but in the physical sciences he's out of this world. His secluded life, unable to mix with other kids, go to shows, games, or do anything that gets him into crowds, gives him a very limited background for understanding his environment, leaves him unboyish. He doesn't understand people. I constantly have the impression that he is anxious to do the right thing, but is simply baffled by problems in human relations. I know. He looks at me sometimes as though he's just desperate to reach me somehow, a lonely, unhappy little soul. He gets plenty of affection from both of us, but it isn't the answer. It just isn't the answer. Tell me, Helen, do you love your son? Do I? Well, now, really, Phil, what kind of a question is that? A simple one. Do you love Timmy? Of course I do. He's very dear to me. Do you love your son? Now, look here. I told you. Phil, what are you getting at? I'm wondering why you have no doubt that you love Timmy, but the question of whether you love your son confuses you and throws you on the defensive. You react strongly, evade answering, take refuge in exclamations and unfinished sentences, a species of stuttering. Can it be that you find it difficult to think of Timmy as your son? Do you doubt that he is your son? Here, sit down. I didn't think it would hit you so hard. Phil, the only other moment like this in my life was when I first admitted to myself years ago that Timmy was what he used to be, an imbecile. Phil, it can't be true. He is my son. There's been no substitution, no... Easy, Helen, easy. I agree with you. I've checked back as fully as I can, and I'm sure there's been no trickery of any sort. Timmy was born to you eleven years ago, beyond a shadow of a doubt. But you've felt it too, haven't you? He's sweet and lovable in his funny, confused way, talking like a comic strip kid one minute and an encyclopedia the next, so empty and far away sometimes, then loving and affectionate, as though to make up to us for being... away. I'm sure he loves us, Jerry and I, as much as we love him, but I feel that we've failed him, 
that he wants love, but it can't reach him. I'll say it, Phil. I feel that he's not mine, that he's apart from us. Ridiculous, isn't it? I can't feel true kinship for my own child, much as he means to me. I feel better now that I've said it. I wish I could say the same, but I don't know that I feel any better for adding one more question mark to a long, long line of them. Like you, I sense a loneliness, a reaching out from Timmy for something I can't give him, no matter what I do, no matter how I try to understand. I watch him, and I think of that line, a stranger and afraid. What is there that frightens him? Can it possibly be us? End of section 2